native of Montreal, Andrew Cohen attended McGill and Cambridge Universities. Among his best-selling books are Trudeau's Shadow, The Life and Legacy of Pierre Elliott Trudeau, The Unfinished Canadian and While Canada Slept, How We Lost Our Place in the World, the finalist for the Governor General's Literary Award, a former foreign correspondent and award-winning editorialist with the Globe and Mail. He writes a weekly syndicated column. He is a professor of journalism and international affairs at Carleton University in Ottawa, where he lives with his wife, son, and daughter. Welcome to The Bibliophile. Pleasure to be here. I'd like to start with the cover of the book. We're talking about Lester B. Pearson, the book that you wrote as part of the Extraordinary Canadians series that Penguin has been publishing over the last couple of years. The painting of him on the cover it makes him look like he's concerned he's worried he's quite the opposite of the picture that you paint of him in the book why is that damned if i know the covers were commissioned for the series uh, independent of the books themselves which is not a criticism because i think they're wonderful covers by um, uh, wonderful artists i think he looks a bit like mao you're right. There's there's an anxiety. There's a uh, Nigel, as you say, there's a concern that he had, but would belie the rather exuberant, jaunty, optimistic Mike. Mike being the nickname that he carried from the Great War through life. And In fact, you mentioned that he had a what could have been classified as a, a nervous breakdown, as any anyone with any kind of feeling probably would given what he had to face in the First World War. Well, his war experience is interesting because probably he served longer in the military than any other prime minister, certainly in the 20th century. And uh, he goes off to war as an, uh, an enthusiastic son of the empire. He enrolls at 18 years old in 1915. As soon as he can, he enrolls. And he uh, joins the University of Toronto Medical Corps and, and begins life on the uh, slower uh, eastern front in Salonika. He wants to be transferred out of there because he thinks there's not enough of a war for him. That he, At a time that, that people were pulling all kinds of strings to get out of the fight, he wants to get in it and he's transferred to the western front. But before he can get there, he says, I'm going to be a flyer. He learns to fly, and but he never sees combat on the western front because he goes up in one of these, uh, really, uh, they were nothing more than motorized box kites uh, held together by um, elastic bands and glue. He has an accident. He's uh, put in a hospital. And uh, on leave, uh, he steps in front of a bus on Edgware Road in London, and it's not cold, and he has to recover. It's then that as he contemplates the war in conversation with others, that he begins to wonder, this is 1917, what this was all about. And it's then that we believe that he had something akin to a nervous breakdown when he gets back to, when he's both recovering and gets back to Canada. He never um, was what I would call a war profiteer. He never wanted to talk about the war. He never, as a politician, would exaggerate his war experience. It was something he did, and he said, I survived it. Yeah, um, there's a lovely little quote, and incidentally, throughout the book, there are all sorts of really pleasing snippets and lines that you've either taken from his writing or you've, you've developed yourself. But there's one that says, here, here, I got hurt before I got a chance to get killed. Right. Nigel, it's important to understand the character of this man. He was, at his core, modest. His background was modest. He, he didn't come from money. He um, came from a loving, some would call a, a family in genteel poverty. His father was a clergyman. They moved from 
parish to parish across uh, Ontario, both central and southern Ontario. He had a wonderful childhood, but not a wealthy one. And modesty was sewn into the virtues of, of being the son of a monks. And that's the way he was raised. And it was the modesty and the sunniness of his life, which goes back to why you're asking about the portrait. And again, that's an artist license, I guess. Well, yeah, but, and also uh, there's some complexity too, isn't there? There is complexity. The yes, and, and people think, you know, I mean, you look at his career and he says as it's ending, as his life ending, he said, you know, I've been lucky. I've had many lives, more lives than a cat. And, uh, and he says, I've been lucky in all of them. He had more lives. You know, this man was an athlete. He was a soldier. He was a teacher. Of course, he was a student. He uh, was uh, a diplomat. He was a politician. He was a writer. He had many lives, and he was successful in all of them. And what I try and capture in this book are the nature of those lives, because people forget, perhaps, that long before Lester Pearson became prime minister, he was a, a successful opposition leader. Before that, he was a successful minister of external affairs. Before that, he was a diplomat, and he was perhaps the best-known Canadian in the world in the 1940s. The subject of glowing testimonials and articles in the international press. And he was also approached frequently to lead various international organizations, he was. wasn't he? He was. He was uh, by the, even uh, up to the time he was a politician, in 1958, when he um, had become leader of the Liberal Party in uh, the fall of 1957. And by the way, his leadership of the Liberal Party is perhaps his most unacknowledged success because he takes a devastated Liberal Party, and by the way, he had a lot to do with its devastation by having been, uh, I guess, badly misadvised and, and, and forced an election, and John Diefenbaker just crushes him. Walter Gordon advised him. Uh, Walter Gordon and others misadvised yeah. him, really. Yeah. Misadvised him. I think it was largely Pickerskill, too, Jack Pickerskill, um, and said, you know, you can bring them down. We've been out of power six months, and the country's ready to bring us back. And they weren't ready, and that was uh, a hubris and an arrogance, which, which didn't serve him well. However, having done that, he begins... And there are always, always uh, lessons for our time, Nigel, and how you, if, if Michael Ignatieff wanted a blueprint of how you rebuild a party and lead it back to power when it's on its knees, Mike Pearson provides that in the years 58 to, to 63. But bringing but, in a lot of brilliant young oh, yeah. men. But, but in reference to what you said about his opportunities, when the returns were coming in on March 31st, 1958, and there, were, the, there was really no polling then, so you didn't really know how you were going to do until the, the people voted. And it looks pretty bad. He and his wife, uh, Marion, are at the Chateau Laurier, and the returns are coming in, and it, it's, it's, it's a devastating loss. The Liberals have been reduced to 40 seats. The lowest at that the point lowest, in history, right, yeah, for them. Uh, yeah. Or 48, I can't remember, but between 40 and 48 seats. And John Diefenberger had run up the largest parliamentary majority in Canadian history. And he's facing this, this devastation, and his wife turns to him and he said, Mike... We've lost everything. You've even won your seat. <laughs> and what she was saying was, now you've got to do this job. Well, around this time, he'd been offered to head the Rockefeller Foundation in New York, which was a charitable organization, at what was then a six-figure salary. A six-figure salary in 1958, if you do the, the math, is a lot of money today. And he said no. Against the uh, request or the will of his wife, he said no. Was that any, sorry, any connection with King's relationship with the Rockefeller? Uh, uh, I don't think so, but no. maybe, you know, it's interesting you should say so that. Maybe because, he could try to get rid of Pearson. Uh, yeah, maybe. I hadn't thought of the relationship because you're right, King had been associated. Whatever it was, he had other opportunities. It was a Nobel laureate. He had won the Nobel Prize in 57, which assured that he would be leader of the Liberal Party. And he takes it on. 
and he he says that I am going to, despite the withering attacks that come across the aisle every day from John D. Gregory, a practice, practice parliamentarian. Mike Mike Pearson was not a practice parliamentarian. He wasn't good at that. He was a diplomat. He yeah. was he was temperamentally a diplomat, emotionally a diplomat. And John Diefenbaker was a practice. Uh, politician, so there would be this low guttural catfight across the floor of the House of Commons, and this went on from 1958, largely, or 1957 to 1967, roughly. And these two were at the forefront of Canadian politics: John Diefenbaker and Lester Pearson, in different positions. One as Prime Minister, then they switched positions, and one became the opposition. And until Deef was forced out in in 67, that was the reality of Canadian politics. But Mike Pearson does rebuild the party. You quote him as saying that his experience in, in one of the elections, I think, that they won, it was it was one of the worst experiences of his life. Yeah. So as you say, he's clearly not built to to be aggressive in the trenches uh, like uh, like Diefenbaker was. But the series only allows your take, if you will, on this man as opposed to anything in depth. But you you don't really get into the relationship between Diefenbaker and Pearson. And I wonder if you could just talk to that a little bit. Well, I think they hated each other. Yeah, Diefenbaker, when Pearson was on his deathbed, said we need to pray for him. Yes, yes, he did. He did. did. Diefenbaker was a complex guy. Mike Pearson uh, didn't hate anybody, and I've used a strong word. But he thought uh, Diefenbaker was uh, untrustworthy. He had a bonhomie, Mike Pearson. It's why he, you know, when he met Jack Kennedy, they immediately, in the part of the day, bonded. They liked each other. Kennedy was so happy to see Pearson after having dealt with <laughs> yes. Diefenbaker because yeah. Kennedy couldn't stand Diefenbaker. He re- it reminded him of the worst Western populists. He had never any use for them in the United States. Mrs. Pearson, Marion Pearson, always referred to John Diefenbaker as that bad man, that bad man. They didn't like the way John Diefenbaker conducted himself because John Diefenbaker took no prisoners. Mm. He was, as I said, a fierce, practiced rhetorician, and parliamentarian. And Mike Pearson, though he had been in Parliament longer than John Diefenbaker, most of those years, in fact, all of those years until between 1948 when he enters uh, the House of Commons and becomes Minister of External Affairs, he had the most glorious and seamless rise into politics. He's recruited mm-hmm. by the Liberal Party. A seat is found for him and the candidate, the, the occupant, the incumbent is moved to the Senate and the writing is prepared, and it's all done the way the Liberal Party did things in those days, and they win another majority, and Mike Pearson moves from the from being the top man, the Undersecretary of State at External Affairs, to be the Minister of External Affairs. After having been a, a diplomat from 1928 to 1948, suddenly he's a politician. But in those years, 48 to 58, or 48 to, to, to 57, he's Minister of External Affairs, and he isn't part of the cut and thrust of Parliament because he's away. Mm-hmm. He's at the UN. He would decamp for the UN and it seemed like he would spend weeks there, which is why he was so successful there. He knew everybody. And everyone liked him. Everybody liked yeah. him. And, and, and he had been known long before that. What people don't know about Mike Pearson is that he was at the forefront of much of the creation uh, of post the post-war world. Uh, whether it, I mean, his proudest achievement, I mean, he was there for the UN, of course, and he was there for the, interna- the, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, and he was there for the creation of the International Monetary Fund and, and the NATO. World Bank. Yeah. But his proudest achievement, as you say, Nigel, is, is NATO. 
and he said that not it, the Suez. Well, uh, in terms of creating something, no, okay. I think it, I think he, he, he'll even say NATO was more important to him than Suez. He saw Suez, which is his finest hour, and it is at Suez uh, that all that he's learned, and all that he knows, and everywhere he's been, and everyone he's met, all come together in this um, extraordinary application of politesse and finesse and diplomacy. It all happens in the fall of 1956. It's so fascinating how it, it places Canada exactly where it needs to be, that we've got France, we've got Britain, and we've got the United States. And it's so typical of Pearson's life as you paint it. He's at the right place at the right time, and opportunity presents itself and he seizes it. Well, you know, and the word luck, I mean, he'll say, I've had nine lives, uh, more than again, I've been lucky in all of them. But it isn't just luck. No. And I talk about that. And it, and, and it may be a cliche to talk about hockey, but, you know, the best hockey players are those who not, not so much know where the puck is, but they know where it's going. And so he makes decisions. People said in the 1930s, you know, maybe you ought to go to Japan. Because, you know, you could, you, you could have a career in Japan. He says, I'm not going to Japan. I'm going to be where the action is, and the action is in Europe. Later on, the 1940s, they say, you can go to Brazil if you would like to. He said, I'm not going to Latin America. I'm going to go, I'm going to leave London and go to Washington. And, and so he makes decisions. When he turns 50, he looks back on a life, um, you know, he'll still have a lot, you know, he'll have another quarter century or more. But he looks back on a life in which it hasn't been about just luck. He's made his luck. Mm. He's gone to where the puck is going to be. And by the way, um, the hockey analogy is not wasted on Mike Pearson because he's a great athlete. Mm. And one thing Canadians don't know about Mike Pearson is he was a great athlete. He did play semi-professional baseball. Well, there's another great right. line that you use. He says, I'm the only diplomat that was paid to play baseball. That's right. He plays baseball uh, after the Great War. In fact, he organizes baseball games in, uh, in the field, so to speak, in, in Europe. And he comes back, I think it's the summer of 1919, and he plays, uh, I think it's with the Guelph um, semi-professional ball. Yeah. Then he goes to Oxford, which is a golden period for him in 1921, and he plays for the Oxford team. And they call him in Europe, he plays in Switzerland, they call yes. him Herr, Herr Zigzag, because he was so good with the puck. And he's offered, he doesn't take it, Nigel, but he's offered a place on, on, the, on the Olympic team, on the British Olympic team, interest, interestingly enough. Love sports. And it's, uh, I spent a lot of time with his late son, Jeffrey. And Jeffrey always said to me, himself, by the way, a, a renowned Canadian diplomat, Jeff always said, you ought to talk about my father as a sportsman. And the book opens on the second floor of Laurier House in Ottawa, which is a National Historic Site, the home of Laurier and then of King. And through an accident, uh, there is a little museum there, a little room there, which is a replica of Mike Pearson's office. Uh, his basement office, which he used in retirement when he left uh, Sussex Drive in 1968, the last four years of his life, it what was a basement office, which looked like, by the way, as I say, a rec room in Sudbury. I mean, it was nothing <laughs> special about it, but it's adorned with ribbons and and plaques and bowls and trophies. He took up rugby in Britain, and he wins the award as one of the finest rugby players. He gets mentioned in the Times. Yeah, he gets mentioned, you know the book better than I, <laughs> right up to the time he was Prime Minister, he took part in softball games, which took place in front of Parliament Hill. You know, the press gallery would play the MPs in those days. So sporting life is very important to Mike Pierce. The only thing he couldn't do well was swim. And so Jeffrey said, never want him near water because he just wasn't a natural swimmer. You make the point too, I love this here, that the team, this this Oxford expat team, 
was so strong it beat Cambridge 27 nothing. I know. You know why? Of course, the whole team was Canadian. He goes to again another another life. He yeah. leaves Oxford, uh, which he calls glorious years at Oxford. He's there for two years, and he's having a very good time. And that's where he plays Roxford. He goes to Switzerland and he's hair zigzag and he he plays hockey. But he returns home and he gets what he wants. And what he wants is he wants to teach at the University of Toronto. He wants to teach in the Department of History. People like Donald Creighton are there, and uh, and others are there. Some of the giants who would become part of the Canadian school. And he says there. He's teaching, and he says, you know, I was coaching there, but my coaching only took up three hours a day. He says that. He said, coaching only took up three hours a day. And they offered him, in 1928, he's writing the examination for this fledgling department of foreign, of external affairs, as it was then called, and Ori Skelton has been given a mandate in 1925 to make something of it. existed since 1909, but it really wasn't much. And he's recruiting. So Mike Pearson goes up to Ottawa, and, and he's got this acceptance. He goes up to Ottawa. At the very same time, UT comes back to him and says, how would you like to be the football coach? And, so, and he, he's, you know, he's tempted because he loves sports. And Marion says, your future is not as a football coach. But it just shows the variety of his life. And everything he does... Everything he does, he brings enormous energy. You don't get to be the kind of person he was if you're lazy. So the only three hours a day for football, much as he loved it, was part of a life in which he threw himself into everything, and no more so than when he was a diplomat. Well, he also, as you say, he embraces almost every situation that he's in. You, you know, again, back in the First World War, it's awful, and it, and he finds it awful, but he also finds it fascinating. He does. He, he has a good war, um, First World War, um, in the sense that he, his mother says, you know, I'm so worried about you. you. You were so sickly as a kid. And, you know, the moment your feet get wet, you're, you're, you're going to be uh, sick. And he's never sick. He said, he actually felt guilty. He said, I feel ridiculously healthy. He had arranged, uh, he, he knew the right people. He knew the right quartermaster. And he, he found ways in, in a, a, you know, to improve his situation as soldiers did there, better food, better clothing, uh, nothing untoward, but simply the way you work the system to do certain things. Um, but he said uh, at a time there was black water fever and there was dysentery and typhoid and, and soldiers are dropping like flies and the winters are cold and they've gone with summer uniforms because they weren't well equipped. Mike says, I'm having a good war. And I think it was that guilt that, by the way, that drove him to, the, to, the, to join yeah. the, the Western Front. And you know something, if he hadn't have been in the Royal uh, Flying Corps, and had that accident, he probably would have gone to the Somme, where his brother had been. That probably would have been the end of him. Because, as we know, it was a slaughterhouse. Well, and he knew that. And his brother, too, was his psychologically brother. damaged. Yeah, his, his, brother, uh, his brother, really, he had two brothers. Neither of which he was close to, which no. is, again, kind of no. contradictory. Well, you know, he, like, he's, he's a very friendly, but maybe he's much more private and less sociable in, in, in his real life. The biographer always looks for friends his friends and the Reagan biographers are always looking for friends. I'm writing on the Kennedys now and it's no problem identifying Jack Kennedy's close friends. But for some people like Mike Pearson, it is hard to identify his, his closest friends because uh, you know he, he was very generous but there was something of a competition between Norman Robertson and him and Norman Robertson was, uh, they were uh, entered the department uh, just about a year apart but Norman Robertson from Vancouver, an economist had gone to Oxford Less successfully than Mike, didn't like it as much as Mike did. 
1941, when Odie Skelton drops dead, yeah. and Mike Pearson is uh, in London, Mackenzie King makes Norman Robertson the number two. Uh, uh, leapfrog. Leapfrog's right. over. Yeah. He's six years younger. Yes. He's joined the department later. And Mike Pearson, to his great credit, I mean, he, he, was, he wanted the job, and he was hurt. It was a big disappointment. Wasn't big it? disappointment, yeah. but he gives a speech, and, and he yeah. said, let, let no tongues wag in Ottawa over this. I mean, this is the choice. And he serves Norman Robertson very well. But were they close friends? Yeah, I mean, I describe in, um, in Wall Canvas Slept, you know, Norman Robertson and, and Hugh Wrong, they're buried beside each other in McLaren's um, cemetery. Where's that? Uh, it, it's in Wakefield. But I opened, it, I opened uh, Wall Canvas Slept with this image of the three of them walking. Which incidentally has been nominated for one of the best books of the, what is it, the best well, history uh, book of the last Well, the best book of the last 25 yeah. years, so I'm very uh, honored by that. But they're, they're wandering in the Gatineau Hills, and we think it's the 40s, but we're not sure, and they come across this old cemetery, a 19th century graveyard, just above Wakefield. And those days, Wakefield was a distance from Ottawa, though there were six trains a day from Ottawa that pulled into the station. Now we don't sustain any. We have a little tourist train which breaks down all the time. Sure. But in those days, it, it, it could take, the roads were so rudimentary, it could take you three hours to get up to where they were. But they were walking and they, and they find this magnificent cemetery. And I remember so well when I first saw it. And they had this very romantic view that, they're all going to be buried there, so they spend $10 each on plots. Including Pearson? Pearson's there. Hume Rong. Hume Rong dies in 1954, so he never sees Mike Pearson as PM. Norman Robertson dies in, in 1968, after Mike has become PM. And uh, Mike dies in 72, and they're all buried beside each other, and their families are as well, and their wives. Very, it does say it, something, doesn't it? It's, yeah. it's a beautiful, it sits on the side of a hill. They're all buried there, and uh, it's very moving because it represents their commitment. They weren't soulmates. They were at times competitive. Their relations mm. were sometimes frayed, but they, they were friends. But having said that, having said that, Mike Pearson, for all his sunniness, had deep fears about the world. Um, there's a reason he devotes uh, his retirement to the idea of international assistance in the world. He, he believes it's important. And he worries about what he would call, in the parlance of the time, thermonuclear war. There's, he worries about it. I'm speaking with Andrew Cohen, who's the author of Lester B. Pearson, part of the Extraordinary Canadians series put out by Penguin. There's a couple of paragraphs in this book that have me scratching my head. In a way, Pearson's finding a solution to Suez was the worst thing that could have happened to Canada and to its most famous diplomat. Pearson became synonymous with peace it turned him into a do-gooder, a pacifist on the mountaintop, a saffron-robed priest. His granddaughter, Anne Pearson, says, This is the reason that she is a Baha'i, whose teachings are similar to what Lester Pearson espoused. She also thinks that it's paradoxical that Pearson could have helped establish NATO. Today, were he here, he would explain that the purpose of NATO was to keep the peace and protect Western democracy. Suez colored that commitment. In a sense, it denied the history of Canada, which keeps peace when it can, but fights when it must, as it did in three big wars in the 20th century at a cost of some 100,000 Canadians. Scratching your head? Yeah. Well, what I'm saying there, Nigel, is that um, Lester Pearson was never a pacifist. And those who have attempted to hijack uh, 
his reputation and make him such, and with all due respect to his niece, uh, who became a Baha'i, don't understand him. Lester Pearson believed in peace. He believed in what we call today soft power. Mm. Soft power was the power of persuasion and diplomacy. Mm-hmm. Nobody spent more time in the pursuit of soft power, in the exercise of soft power, in the belief in diplomacy. At the same time, Mike Pearson knew all about hard power. He had, after all, seen war in a way that perhaps all his successors as Prime Minister had not seen war. I mean, Mr. Trudeau didn't see war at all, famously. Um, and others, for various reasons, didn't see war. And Pearson let nuclear warheads on Canadian soil. Yes, he did. So what's important to know about Mike Pearson is that he believed in diplomacy, but he also believed in a military. He felt you couldn't have one without the other, that Suez was important because it established the concept of peacekeeping. There would be no peacekeeping were there not armies to keep the peace, mm-hmm. which had to be well-armed and well-trained. So it's peacemaking. Well, there was peacemaking and peacekeeping, peacebuilding. But would you say that he was more of a peacemaker then? I would say he was a peacemaker. What I'm saying is he knew there were times when... For example, fighting fascism. He was not Jeanette Rankin in the United States, a pacifist who, who, who got up in the House of Representatives after Pearl Harbor and says, we can't fight the Japanese, and that was the end of her, but had been a lifelong, extraordinary pacifist. He was never that way. What I'm saying is, we were both, under Lester Pearson, we became the world's leading peacekeeper. It was an honorable, useful, important role for us. We comprised 10% of the world's peacekeepers. We led it. We funded it. At the same time, we had what was called the finest small army in the world. An army of about 125,000, which would make it 50,000 bigger than it is today. That was of use if we needed it. If we needed it, and Mm. he felt we did need it in Korea. Kind of a velvet hammer. There are those who think of us solely in terms of peacekeeping and think, that's all Mike Pearson did, but mm-hmm. they misread the man. Now, mm-hmm. having said that, he opted out. He opposed Vietnam. He said, we're not going, and we didn't go. And he got strung up on his lapels. He did by, by Lyndon Johnson. So what I'm saying to you is that Suez is a proud moment for Canada, but it would be a mistake to exaggerate the role of peacekeeping. We had far more forces committed to NATO, a Pearson creation, mm-hmm. than we did peacekeeping which I won't call a Pearson creation, but certainly a Pearson instrument or initiative. Exactly. That's the the difference, I guess, in those two thoughts. Just winding uh, our conversation down, part of this series, or part of the the mandate or the goal of this series is to get Canadians to look at historical figures in different ways. It's interesting, Pearson led a minority government, and Stephen Harper campaigned on the need for a majority government, and yet look what Pearson achieved with a minority. And yet he was perceived as a befuddled, incompetent leader in many people's eyes. Could you clarify all of this and give us your different perspective on the man? There are two lessons I think we learn. What good is history if we can't learn from it? One is, had I been Michael Ignatieff, um, I would have learned how Mike Pearson rebuilt the Liberal Party's opposition leader and led it back to power. It was a lesson, there was a blueprint there for what he did. We, we made mention of that earlier. In fact, Michael Knapp did read the book and was very complimentary about it. 
whether he applied those principles or not, other people can, can judge. Quickly, what were some of those principles? Renewal. Mike Pearson said, look, I don't like John Diefenbaker. He uh, says unkind things to me, but I'm in this for the long haul. Although I'm facing a majority, and although there's no prospect of an election for probably four or five years because uh, no majority government is going to call one earlier, I'm committed to this. So what am I going to do? I'm going to renew the party intellectually and have the Kingston Conference in 1960. I'm going to hire that guy called Keith Davey, that very sharp advertising man in, in Toronto, and I'm going to give him a mandate to uh, reorganize the structure of the party, its finances, mm -hmm. its organization. And, and I, I'm going to be okay if he brings in people like Lou Harris, the American pollster, who the Kennedys were using. And I'm not going to be upset if he walks around with a copy of The Making of the President, 1960, mm -hmm. which was Teddy White's book, which became almost a manual, a guide. Um, and I'm going to move to the left. I'm going to move to the left, and I'm going to be innovative in policy. I'm going to get out ahead on bilingualism because I have to understand that. I'm not going to be afraid to reverse our policy on nuclear warheads. I may be called the unfrocked Prince of Peace by that guy, Pierre Trudeau, who's running Cité Libre in Quebec, but I think he's a pretty good guy, and I'm going to recruit him along with Jean Pelletier and Jean Marchand, who will be all of one will be a future prime minister, one will be central cabinet ministers, and I'm going to recruit people like John Turner, another prime minister, and I'm going to recruit Jean Chrétien, another prime minister, I'm going to recruit Mitchell Sharp and Eugene Whelan and, and Barney Danson and Walter Gordon, and all these, all these people are going to become the future of the Liberal Party. And he could do that because he's so what? Be because he was imaginative and energetic. In 1962, he gives a speech, which, you know, this is a person from Lily White, English, Canada, who said something is happening in Quebec, and I better recognize what that something is. I don't speak French, but I realize bilingualism is important. I read it, but I don't really speak it, and I need to understand what's happening in, in, in Quebec. And so I'm going to bring in an équipe de well, équipe de tonnerre was Jean Lesage's term, but I'm going to bring in my own people from Quebec. He does all this and he gets it. So by 1962, he takes the Diefenbaker down to minority. In 1963, he, he doesn't win a majority. He never wins a majority. Mike Pearson was a terrible campaigner. He often, almost always started higher than he ended. And so in 58, in 62, 63, and 65, where he's he's assured by Keith Davy at 65, having been Prime Minister for two years, you're going to get a majority. He still falls three seats short. So one of the lessons is Mike is, uh, Pearson is opposition leader and what you can do. But the second is what you can do with a minority parliament. Because as you've just said, Prime Minister Harper always said, I can't do anything. Well, if you look at the record of Mike Pearson, and I admit times were different, and it did have the support of a very like-minded New Democratic Party. In fact, there were discussions in 1965 about a merger between the New Democrats and, um, and the Liberals. And Vincent Lamb, I think, refers to it in his uh, biography in this series on Tommy Douglas. They were, you know, the NDP agreed, and the, the Conservative Party was split, and the Quebec wing was, was trending. But what did we get in those years? We got a new flag, which was all Mike Pearson's doing, frankly. Mm -hmm. and Identity. Yeah. John Diefenbaker opposed that. Yeah, there's a great line again, you, another one of your lovely short squibs where you, you'd say, Diefenbaker cried, well, Pearson smiled. smiled. Well, uh, the day, uh, February 15, 1965, the, the flag is, um, is being uh, raised on the Peace Tower. Poor Mike Pearson is down with the flu. He didn't, he didn't even want to come, but he had to show up. Diefenbaker resisted this. He tied it up in the House of Commons as long as he could. 
And there's a wonderful story of Mike Pearson announcing it, and this is political courage. Mike Pearson could have put out a press release. He could have gone before the Liberal Convention to announce this flag. He goes to the Royal Canadian Legion in Winnipeg, and you can watch this on YouTube or the CPC archives and see he was booed. Mm-hmm. He was booed when he said, we're going to change the flag, and a lot of leather-lunged veterans, and he said, you know, I'm a veteran too. I'm a veteran too. I fought. And there was a lot of opposition. And let nobody think in this country that change comes easily, and it just happened. It didn't just happen. The flag was a bataille royale. It went on, but it's Mike Pearson, and he does it in a minority parliament. He does a whole number of other things, yeah. uh, Medicare. He does the Canada Pension Plan. He establishes the Order of, of Canada. He establishes uh, the right to strike in the public sector. Um, he establishes aid to students. He puts new uh, emphasis on immigration. A lot happens, and it is true that uh, he had scandal, not personal scandal, but his Quebec MPs got into trouble, and there were a lot of resignations. And there was a feeling which Peter Newman, the great chronicler of this era, both in renegade and power and the distemper of our times, and I can't say enough good things about my friend Peter Newman because his journalism, and I say this having spent my years covering the Hill, his journalism was uh, without equal, matchless journalism. He catches all this. But the one thing I think, and he and I would disagree, and I have the advantage of looking back at this, which he didn't, is I think that while the captain of the ship seemed adrift, well, the ship seemed adrift and the captain seemed befuddled. And while this was happening, they're legislating. Things are going on. In other words, while there are resignations and while Lucien Rouvard is in jail and escaping and, and while the Munsinger case is breaking, he's legislating. He is moving ahead with, a, with an idea of Canada. It doesn't seem like there's a plan. And his reputation suffers after because he doesn't have a name like the Great Society yeah, yeah. or the Just Society. Yeah. It's not all wrapped up with a red ribbon. You know, what I got from this is that he pretty well sets the table for Trudeau he does. to take all the credit. He does. Well, I don't think Trudeau takes all the credit. I mean, there are many. He's, you not, know, he's not taking no. it, but he gets yeah, it. I, yeah. I, I, you know, um, uh, Mike knew, Pearson knew, that things in Quebec were changing. And he supported Trudeau. He, he and, and by the way, many people who love Mike Pearson don't like when I tell them that Mike Pearson supported Trudeau. How could he support Trudeau? I said because he 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 respected Trudeau. Trudeau wasn't always nice to him, by the way. I mean, Trudeau was insensitive. And there's a uh, you know, Mike was a man of the house and had been in the yeah. house twenty years. And and Trudeau dissolved Parliament so quickly that there were no tributes to Mike Pearson. And and he writes in his diary that day, tough day. He wanted to go out with. You know the kudos of the house, but Mike was a—he had an enormous sense of balance, a, a, an emotional, a temperamental balance, and he—you he, know—he got by it. And he didn't like when Trudeau reviewed his foreign policy. And in 1970, we have it. He scribbles in the margins of the white paper, and it's six different pamphlets. And he says, "What's going on here? What's wrong with the foreign policy that I had?" So there was a bit of insensitivity, but he knew—he knew that. For the long game, they needed a guy who would throw harder and faster, and it was Pierre Trudeau. He's and, a team player. Yeah. And also, people don't like to admit as well that while they consider Mike the great Federalist and the accommodationist, that was only in his first two years as Prime Minister. By 1965, when Trudeau arrives in Ottawa with Marchand and Pelletier, they take a much tougher line in Quebec, and they say, we are no longer going to hand them. I mean, Quebec was demanding the whole, yeah. the whole field of social policy, and, and Pearson says, sorry. I'm not doing, you know, with under the 
the pushing of, of Trudeau. You know, yeah. he was a diplomat. Uh, John English will tell you in his very, by the way, and, and I should acknowledge John English's fine two-volume work on which many of, you know, works like mine and others are built, and we don't ever claim to be definitive. Our purpose here, Nigel, is to not rescue from obscurity because Lester Pearson is not obscure, but is to give this person more more celebrity and more uh, uh, fame than recognition than recognition than an airport where you missed your flight or you lost your bags in Toronto. In other words, you as Canadians and in a country in which we don't talk about our leaders, you as Canadians should understand that this was one of the builders of modern Canada. Very much today, this is Pearson's Canada. The Canada you see today of the social welfare state for years after, we don't do peacekeeping anymore, but uh, Stephen Harper may want to turn his back on, on that, but he's not going to revoke Medicare. He's not going to repeal pensions. Um, he's not going to erase an image of Canada as internationalist. Although, you know, you could argue that, that, you know, our stature in the UN, Mike Pearson would be appalled today by our stature at the UN. But that having been said, it's very much Pearson's Canada still today. Perhaps we could, we could end with you reading the last paragraph sure. of the book. When it was over, his body lay in an oak coffin draped with a maple leaf in the Parliament of Canada. The Royal Canadian Legion, whose members had once jeered him, sent him a spray of poppies. Twelve thousand people filed past. He had a state funeral at which mourners from around the world sang hymns and read psalms. On December 31st, under gunmetal skies and a veil of rain, they carried him to a pioneer cemetery above the village of Wakefield in the Gatineau Hills, where he had rambled with Norman Robertson and Hume Rong and imagined a better world. There he was buried beside him. He would be joined by Marion in 1989 and Jeffrey in 2008. Today the maple leaf flutters from a tall flagpole. The cemetery lies near the top of a hill, falling softly to a thick stand of trees. They say years ago, when those trees were shorter, you could see the Peace Tower. They say, on a quiet day, you could hear the murmur of its bells. Neither is so today. From where he rests, though, the skies are always sunny, and the view is always fair, especially the gentle meadow in the middle distance. Thanks very much. My pleasure. I've been speaking with Andrew Cohen, who is the author of Lester B. Pearson, part of the Extraordinary Canadian series published by Penguin. And you're currently working on... Currently working on a book on um, two days in the administration of John Fitzgerald Kennedy, where his world changes dramatically. And the two biggest issues of the 1960s, nuclear arms and civil rights, commingle and collide. And his administration reaches a moral tipping point at which he has to make big, big decisions. And he does. We'll look forward to that. Thank you so much. Thank you.